sir. Good morning, church. <clears throat> a lot of us have been together for three days in a row, and that is awesome. Uh, more please of that. Um, if you are our guest, um, we are especially excited that you're here because for each of us, um, God sent out a rescue party for us. We, we were on our own. We were doing our own thing. We were doing what felt like was the right thing at the time, but really wasn't yielding the best results. And then someone sent, was sent into our lives and introduced us to Christ and taught us about Christ. And that was a turning point for us. And, and we hope that we can be part of that process for you wherever you are on your journey. Um, we're going through a story um, called To Be Continued, a series called To Be Continued, and, and it's based out of the book of Acts. And so the book of Acts is the story of the church that Jesus, the guys that Jesus trained, it was the church that they built. So the guys who walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus and heard it directly out of the mouth of Jesus, this is the church that they built. And there's a lot of stories of amazing success and impact and a few stories of them really messing it up and having to learn from it. And we can learn from all of that, but the point of all of it is Everything they were doing, the impact they were having, the lives that were being transformed, the, the way the gospel was spreading was meant to still happen right now. That, this, that that was not the end of that story, that we're a continuation of it. And so we're in Acts 22 today, and we're going to talk about a story that we've addressed once before. Back in Acts 8, we saw that Paul was on the way um, to persecute Christians. So Paul is a guy who wrote a lot of the New Testament. He became one of the most effective missionaries um, to ever live. But before he was Paul the missionary, he was Saul. And Saul was a man who persecuted the church. He was going to Damascus to imprison and maybe eventually kill Christians. He was completely against anyone who preached Jesus. And so on his way there, Jesus himself confronts him in a vision. And he's struck blind for days until, until he gets relieved. And so um, he's retelling this story. And, and last week we talked about how Paul was on his way to Jerusalem and all the people that loved him were afraid of that because they knew when he got there, he'd be on trial um, and in prison. And that's exactly what happened. So Acts 22 and what we're going to be talking about is Paul testifying before religious leaders in Jerusalem. And what he's telling them is that there were things that I could only see when I became blind, that there were things that were not clear to me until Jesus struck me blind. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is what it looks like, what Jesus shows us sometimes by blinding us to the things we knew before. And there's stories, we love stories of people losing their sight and gaining perception, right? Daredevil is one of the coolest superheroes, right? And he gets, he gets blinded and then all of a sudden he can see things that he couldn't see before. And he's got a more ability and he goes from just being a whatever lawyer dude to being a superhero. And like this guy who's, who's amazing in the comic books. So the guy in, uh, in Rogue One for the Star Wars fans out there, right? He's like, I'm one with the force, the force is in me. And he's just walking confidently into areas that everyone else is afraid of and and he oftentimes sees parts of the situation that no one else gets. And so for Paul, that's how it was for him. There were things that he could not see until he was struck blind. And that story, that message is so powerful that that story is one of the only stories told twice in the book of Acts. We see it in Acts 8 and then it gets repeated when he's testifying here. So if I'm going to have an experience like Saul of Tarsus, if I'm going to go from someone who was blind before to seeing things clearly, these are some things that I'm going to see. I need to see, number one, that my tradition can blind me from the truth. My traditions can blind me from what is true. And if you don't think that you grew up in a traditional household, that does not mean that you don't have traditions, right? Do you ever go into someone's home or you go into a situation and your first thought is, well, that's weird. The reason you think that is because you're comparing it to what your normal is, right? Everyone has a normal that's been defined by what they've grown up with, 
what they've experienced, what their beliefs that were sown into them were. And so all of us have traditions. All of us have a lens that we look through and it shapes and it colors the things that we see and the things that we experience. And so regardless of whether you have a traditional background, whatever that means, right, we all have a thing that we grew up with and that colors what we see. And Paul did too. So in Acts 22, he's before these religious leaders, these Jewish religious leaders, and he's telling them, I, have, I had the same lens that you had that you have right now, that I saw the world like you see the world. Here's what he says in Acts 22, 1 through 3. He says, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, that's the local Jewish dialect, they became very quiet. And then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel, who was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. And so what's he telling them? He's speaking to them in their local dialect. And Paul said, man, when I go somewhere, I am all things to all people. Right. Paul had a a lot of different things in his background, but he always bring out the thing that connected with the audience he was talking to. And so he speaks to them in the dialect that they're most comfortable with. He talks about being trained up under Gamaliel and Gamaliel wasn't just some guy. He was the teacher of teachers. Like if you were coming up in the Jewish religion, if you studied under him, you were like the guy. Like it was the Harvard of the Jewish world at the time was studying under this guy. And so he's like, look, I'm I get it. I know the things that, you know. And I, I knew that I, I studied the, play, the things that you studied and all of that set me up to reject Jesus. And Jesus came along and I looked at him through that lens. And what was Jesus? Right. He wasn't he didn't have any he didn't come from anywhere special. Right. Every time someone heard that Jesus came from somewhere, they're like, you came from what? <laughs> like it was just some podunk town. You know, it was just nothing on the map. And, and no one could believe that someone significant could come from there. He wasn't he didn't have anything in his appearance that set him apart. Um, his dad wasn't anything impressive. His dad was just some carpenter. He didn't go to, you know, the elite. He didn't study under Gamaliel. He just learned directly from studying the scriptures. And so when Paul looked at him through that lens, initially, Jesus didn't look like the real deal. And it was the good things that God put that God put in Paul's life that got him there. And that's what's weird. God, you know, Paul had a good upbringing. He was raised up and got to go to good schools and he got a lot of privileges that weren't bad things in and of themselves, but sometimes even good traditions, even healthy traditions that on the surface can stop us from seeing things about Jesus. For example, sometimes if you, there are some people that are brought up in the church. There was a, one of our guys we heard a lesson from at, at CMU, his name's Jonathan Storman. He, he talked about Buicks and Buicks are brought up in the church kids. I never heard that term before. I thought that was hilarious. Um, and so when you grow, when you come up in the church, then whatever your background is, whatever you learned in that church is what you know, and you feel very confident in that. And there are some times where if you come away from that with a partial truth, with a partial view of the church, the truth, then it can keep you from seeing the full truth because you're, you're confident in what you have. And the same thing with dysfunction, right? When you learn that this is what a father is from a, a father who either ran off or was terrible then you hear about God the Father, that's going to view, that's going to change how you view him. That's going to be like, oh, Father, I know what that is, right? And then you've got to adjust and you've got to learn. Maybe my view of Father isn't the view of all fathers and that God is something different. Either way, our lens shapes how we view Scripture. And here's where it becomes a problem. When we hear the words of Jesus and we think like we do when we walk into a stranger's home, well, that's weird, Right. When you hear Jesus say something, you're like, that doesn't sound like what I grew up with. That doesn't sound like what I've done up to this point. And we can have two reactions to that. I can say, that's weird. I reject it. Now, I don't want anything to do with it. Or I can say, that's weird. Let me figure out why that's weird to me. When Jesus says, love your enemies, and when someone strikes you to turn the other cheek 
and you grew up with, if someone touches my face, it's on, right? That's weird for Jesus to say that. Why is that weird to me? Should it be weird to me? Is there something I should do about it? Our traditions, can, they, they're deep in us, and if we don't look at Scripture with an open mind, then it can stop us from seeing the full truth of what God's trying to present. So number two, if we're going to be, if we're going to have our eyes open like Paul did, then I need to see that I can be zealous for God, but still lost. I can be really excited about God and not be in his will and not really be following him. Zeal implies an intensity of belief, not a correctness of belief. And we're commanded to be zealous. It says, the Bible says, don't lack in zeal. But with all things, you know, Satan can use something that's good and something that's commanded against us. Right. And so we can be we can let our zeal and our excitement and our love for excitement steer us away from what God really wants in our lives. In Acts 22, Paul goes on in verse three and he says, I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can themselves can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus. And I went there to bring these people as prisoners in Jerusalem to be punished. So Paul's like, look, you waited for me to come to you. I went out and, and found them. I went out and found the Christians and imprisoned them. I went way out of my way. He was very zealous for God, but he was also dead wrong, right? He drew the wrong conclusions from it. And being excited about God doesn't necessarily mean that you're right with God. And Saul was very eager to serve God, and, and his eagerness, because he was wrong about it, led him to hunt down and persecute Christians. Here's how Proverbs says it, and I think this is true. Zeal is not good without knowledge, and the one who acts hastily sins. Right? It's like when you go online and you read the title of an article, right? There's, there's clickbait out there, right? And so you, they write these articles with inflammatory titles, and you read the title, and you're like, I didn't know that was true. And then all of a sudden, you're telling everyone this fact that you learned from a misleading title of an article, right? You are zealous. You are excited to tell everyone because you're really upset about this thing that you learned on a Facebook post one time, Right? That is dangerous. That is not good. You are, you are zealous, but it's zealous with its zeal without knowledge, and that is problematic. And sometimes excitement can act as a replacement for understanding, right? And for Paul, that led him to attack Christians. And I think for most of us, most of us haven't gotten worked up to a religious fervor and like imprisoned Christians and killed them, right? Like not a lot of us in here have imprisoned and killed Christians, I hope. However, we can still make excitement a replacement for transformation. Here's what that looks like, right? When I come into worship and I'm like, man, I just need to feel the presence of God today, right? I've got I've to get this high today, and if I don't feel the presence of God, if I'm not hyped up by the presence of God, then God wasn't really there today. And, there, and we can go around and we can, we can think that way, and we can go and chase these, these spiritual highs, these spiritual excitements, and really what God wants, he doesn't want to change your weekend. He wants to change your lives. He wants to do something that's going to last. And when you see Jesus, Jesus didn't walk around just beaming with joy all the time, right? He wasn't just on this giddy religious mountaintop experience every moment of his life. He was anxious. He was tired. He was lonely sometimes and needed his friends, right? He was unsure at times and needed God's guidance. And if Jesus needed all of that, then you better believe I do. Right? And I need to go back and, and, and go to him and recognize that it's not just about being excited. It's about being transformed. It's about being him doing work in our heart. And that's not every week going to look like me just, you know, euphoric on a Sunday morning. It's going to mean me taking people's word from God and planting it in my heart 
and then letting that do work through the week and, and letting that transform my life week after week and month after month and year after year, that is much more exciting to God than a bunch of people just crying in worship. And that's, it's good to be excited in worship. Don't hear me wrong on this. I'm, I'm with you. I love, I ball every family vacation. I'm just a puddle of tears because we're just all praising together and I'm loving it. But at the same time, that can't be like the one thing that fuels me for the rest of the year. Right? I need real truth poured into me and I need to let him change my heart. And that's what he gets excited about. So I can be zealous for God, but I can be lost. Number three, I need to see that Jesus is who he claimed to be. That when Jesus said he was Savior, Lord, awesome, awesome ruler of the universe, that he was who he said he was. And Saul's confronted with that truth, but he doesn't see it until he's completely humbled. And how often is that the case, right? How often do the most important truths in our life not sink in until we're in the worst place, right? Alcoholics call it a, a moment of clarity, right? And the moments of clarity don't come when you're like partying with your friends on the weekend, right? The moments of clarity come when you're alone in your apartment and you don't have anyone to turn to, right? That's the moment. That's when my moments of clarity have come, when I've realized how far I've gone. In Acts 22, Paul goes on and he talks about his moment of clarity, he says, about noon as I came near to Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? He asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. Now, Paul was only, Saul at the time, was only persecuting one person. So when a voice from the heavens booms and says, why are you persecuting me? He probably knew who it was, right? But he's still like, who are, he's buying time, he's afraid. He's like, this is an oh no moment. This is the realization that he has set himself up as an enemy of God. And whenever someone realizes that they have set themselves up as an enemy of God, there's only one logical question to ask. What do I do, right? What now? I have... I am the worst thing that you can be directly against the, the, the will of God. And an enemy of God for him meant imprisoning and killing Christians. But, you know, it's the same for us. We all have this moment. If you are, even if you've never hurt anyone else, if you are working against God's purposes in your own life, then you are hurting a child of God, right? You are, you are doing something against what God wants. And so even if I'm just self-destructive, I'm still an enemy of God in that moment. And so he, he realized that, and he just says, oh no, what shall I do? And I love the humility that he has in that. And I, I don't always relate to it because honestly, for a long time, I had this thing where anytime I knew I'd lost an argument, I would drop one more truth bomb in there just to make sure I got the last word. And I am not completely cured of that as my closest friends will attest, but um, I'm working on it real hard. And I have learned that when you know you're wrong, it is a lot more effective to add an apology at the end instead of a jab right? And that's hard. That is really hard. It's not ever what I feel like doing, but it is what needs to happen. It is better to ask, what shall I do, instead of, let me tell you why you're wrong, right? And we do that whether we know we're right, wrong or not. When you know you're wrong, it's time to own it, and it's time to change. And that's what Paul does. He asks the right question, and he does something about it. And from that point on, Paul is so transformed that he goes from killing Christians to being willing to die for Jesus. That's Maybe the biggest turnaround in the Bible, right? Like, it's, it's an insane turnaround. And it happens with all 12 of Jesus' apostles. Judas despairs and kills himself. All the rest of them, um, and Matthias, who replaces him, ends up 
dying for their faith. They are guys who all, when Jesus was being crucified, ran away, hid, lied, disowned Jesus. Like These are all guys who were cowards before Jesus died, and when he was raised again, all 12 of them were willing to die for Jesus. This is what John says, and think about this. When John writes this, he has watched all the other apostles die for their faith. He's the last one left. He's the only one who, didn't die, who died of natural causes. And even he was exiled um, and, and died imprisoned. But this is what John says after watching all of his friends die for, for Jesus and, and seeing that, that excitement. He says, we want to tell you about the word that gives life, the one who existed before the world began. This is the one we have heard and have seen with our own eyes. We saw what he did and our hands touched him. Yes, the one who is life was shown to us. We saw him, and so we can tell others about him. We now tell you about him. He is the eternal life that was with God the Father and was shown to us. You know, John's saying, we saw him on the cross. We saw him cry out. We heard him cry out. We saw him buried, and then we touched and embraced and walked with the talking, risen Jesus Christ. And that changed them forever because they knew he was who he said he was. And for each of us, there comes a point where we realize this guy is who he says he is. And all the things that I thought were true about myself, there's so much better available. All the lies that I believed about myself, that he gives me truth, that all the things that I thought I could never overcome, he gives me freedom from. And in that moment, man, we'd, we'd do anything. You know, in that moment, you realize, man, there is nothing that's worth giving this up for. And we remind ourselves of that every week, the way that he commanded us to. Every week, the disciples were taught to take communion, to share the body and the blood of Jesus. They broke bread and they shared a cup. And so we're going to share that today and then we'll come back together and wrap up. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, thank you for embracing us um, when we were still your enemies. Each of us were actively working against your purposes and in other people's lives, in our lives, just whether it was out of ignorance or whether it was out of rebellion. Lord, each of us were doing things that that weren't what you wanted to see in our lives, that weren't as good as the, the life you had prepared for us. And in that moment, while we were still your enemies, you sent your son to die for us. And we're so thankful for the chance to, to be a part of your family, to be welcomed in and to, to be embraced in that way. And I pray that as we take in um, your son's body and his blood, his sacrifice that he made to welcome us home, um, that we wouldn't take that lightly and that we would welcome others in, in this, with that same generosity and that same sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen. So if we're going to see the things that only a blind man can see, then a lot of times it's going to take us accepting things that's different than the lens that we've had before, accepting things that are <clears throat> maybe different than how we, what we believed before, um, and accepting God's truth over our own. And a lot of times what does that is when we get to a low point. Number four, if we're going to see the things that only a blind man can see, then we're going to see that God, <clears throat> excuse me, God will humble me in order to help me. Following Jesus is a choice. It's a choice that we all get to make. You don't have to follow Jesus. No one's going to make you follow Jesus. In fact, even God himself, <clears throat> excuse me, won't make you follow Jesus. But God is a loving father. And when you know that you have presented two choices to your children, or your children have two choices in front of them, and you know that one is going to make their life a lot worse, and one's going to make their life a lot better, then you do anything you can to help them choose the right thing even if it means making their life more difficult for a while, right? Even if it means punishing or putting them, letting them feel the natural consequences of their choices longer than you would like to, you will do anything you can to help your kid make a choice that's going to make their life better. 
And God's the same way. He's a perfect father. And so that's how he treats us. And that's how it was for Paul. Paul was choosing the wrong choice. And God wasn't going to make him choose the right choice. But he was going to make it really obvious which one was the right one. And so in Acts 22, he goes on and he tells the story. And he says, my companions, after being struck blind, my companions led me by the hand into Damascus because of the brilliance of the light that had blinded me. And where they are leading him to is a guy in Damascus that Paul was going specifically to imprison. And I don't know what could be more humiliating than being invulnerable, than being led around blind by the guy that you went to abuse, right? That is, that is a low. That is a spiritual low point for Paul. It's an embarrassing time. And it's one that, honestly, he could have declined. He could have said, you know what, I'm not going to go. That's really embarrassing. And yet he went. And in that moment, as he was humbled and blind, he saw things differently than he had seen before. When in Psalm 25, 9, it says, God, he leads humble people to do what is right, and he teaches them his way. In other words, if you want to be led by God, you must be humble. That's not God being exclusionary. That's not God leaving people out. It's just acknowledging the truth that you can't lead someone who doesn't want to follow. Right? You can't change someone who doesn't want to be changed. And so if you are praying, God, lead me, God, show me what to do, then acknowledge that you are asking God to humble you. And that's not always a super fun process, but it's the only state that he can work with you in. Because if you're not willing to follow, then you can't be led. And so if you are praying for God to lead you, God will either humble you or he will ignore you, depending on what your heart is ready for. If you're ready to be led, then he'll humble you. If you're ready to push him away and run away, then he's going to ignore those prayers because you're not ready for it. And, and what we've got to be able to do if we're going to see things that we can't see before is have the humility to say, maybe I'm not right all the time. Maybe there are things that are outside of my experience that someone else has to contribute. And even if they're uncomfortable, even if they're weird, even if they're not what I'm used to, then maybe there's something to that. And sometimes what we can't see in our pride, what we're blinded to in our pride, becomes crystal clear in our humility. Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever had something that someone's probably told you 50 times and you just ignored it and ignored it and ignored it, right? How many times did I have to hear that you don't need to get the last word in, Adam. That is, you are not making friends by jabbing at them over and over again, right? How many times did I have to hear that before I, had to, before I learned it? How many people in my life do you think I had to hurt, right? How many relationships do you think I had to strain before I learned that lesson, right? And it took seeing my wife's face hurt enough times before I, that suddenly it became crystal clear, and then I heard it, and I'm like, oh, well, that's what they meant, right? Oh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough, my bad. <laughs> my wife's name is Crystal, for those of you who don't know the joke. So um, it became very clear. <laughs> um, that's good. So, you know, <laughs> my wife has let me see a lot of things clearly, right? There's a lot of times where you just hear things over and over again, and you just don't hear it until you're humble enough and you realize, you know what, I'm wrong. And, and the way that I hurt someone or the way that I hurt myself helps me see that. Um, it's not fun. I never want to see my kids hurt. I never want to see my kids uncomfortable or sad or um, I want to shield them from a lot of the consequences of what they do, but they've got to feel it if they're going to see things clearly. And, and if I take away their chance to be humble, then I'm taking away their chance to, to see the world as it really is and to grow. Um, and I, I love my kids too much to do that. And God loves us too much to shield us from that. Number five, if I'm going to see things clearly, I need to see that finding Jesus involves following people every time it always every time god wants to bring someone to himself there is a when there was a guy 
going across a barren desert in a chariot by himself, even in that moment, God's like, I'm going to send some dude to that random spot in the desert and he's going to talk to you. God loves working through people to help others find him. Paul is an independent guy. He's taking the initiative. He's going beyond what others have done to persecute Christians. He's, he's going out of his way. He was used to doing things on his own initiative, but if he didn't learn to follow people, he never would have learned what he needed to follow Jesus. If God had said, while he was still blind, go into Damascus and you'll hear what you need to do. If he had said, that's too embarrassing, I'm not going to do it, you know what, he'd, be, he'd still be blind. He never would have gone, he never would have gotten to the guy that would have, prevented, would have presented healing to him. And a lot of times for us, when we get to that moment, and we've got to decide, am I going to listen to other people or am I going to go my own way? What we're choosing between is healing and being held hostage to the things we were in before. In Acts 22, as Paul goes on in his story, he says, My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because of the, brilliant light, the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and respected by all the Jews living there. So he is a Jewish Christian. It says, He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Now, what's interesting about this story is that two people got their sight that day. Because the first thing that Ananias says when God says, hey, Saul is coming to be healed by you, he says, no, you don't know who that guy is. Which is hilarious to God, because obviously God knows who he is, right? <laughs> but he got to see that he got transformed to the point that by the, time, by the time Saul gets to him, he goes from saying, I can't do that, to brother Saul. That's pretty cool, right? And then Saul, who was humble enough to go and say, you know what, maybe this guy who I was going to in prison had it right all along, and he gets his sight back. And the, the church in Acts is powerful, not because of their independence, which is something we value very much in this country, uh, but because of their interdependence, because they were willing to do and, and determined to do things together. And arrogance and insecurity can both lead us to feel like we don't need other people. And they feel like opposite things, right? But you can eat, whether you feel like I am too good, I've got this covered and I don't need you, or whether you feel like I am too bad and I don't deserve you, both of them end with us saying, I don't need other people. And both of them are fueled by pride and leading exactly away from where God would have us. God drives us into the arms of the church over and over and over again. In fact, he sets up commands. Jesus sets up commands that you literally cannot follow unless there is someone else to, to do them with. Right? You cannot love one another if there is no other to love. Right? You can't do it. You are in violation of the gospel if you are not carrying around, if you don't take opportunities to love other people. And if you don't know who the people are that God is sending your way, there is a really good chance that one of them is the person that invited you today. Right? That one of you is the person who cared enough to bring you around and, and share with you and, and love you enough to bring you into the family. That's a really good sign. And so God will always work through people. He'll always bring people into our lives um, to help us. That's his, that's his goal, and that's how he designs it. Are the people in the church perfect? Absolutely not, right? Stick around long enough. We're not either, right? Like it's going to, I mean, I've messed up. In the last 10 minutes, I've messed up, right? Like it's, things happen. That does not change the fact that God designed us to live in community and that the best life that God prepares for us is done with believers around us and, and people that are striving toward him with us. Number six, if I'm going to see things clearly, I need to see that God still has a purpose for my life. He has a purpose for my life no matter who you are. At the time Saul is confronted, he is maybe 
maybe the person in the world who is the furthest away from the will of God, right? He is actively imprisoning and chasing down people who preach the word of God. And that's the guy that God says, I have a purpose for you. And if you haven't done worse than that, he's got a purpose for you too. Jeremiah 29 is a verse we quote a lot. It's maybe one that you've heard. When God comes and he says, I have plans for you. I have plans to give you hope and a future. You know who he says that to? He doesn't say that to people who are on fire for God. He says that to people who had disobeyed God so fervently that they ran out of his protection and had lost the promised land. God spent generations bringing them to the promised land, and these were the people that lost it. They ruined everything. And that's the people that God comes to and says, I have plans for you. I have, it's the most hopeful message in the whole Bible, and it's given to the people that messed up the worst. Over and over again, the people that run the furthest from God are the ones that God comes to and says, I've got plans for you. And I never killed any Christians, and I never imprisoned any of them. But you know what I have done? I've, I've had two of my children come up to me crying because they were being belittled for their faith in school. And I got to tell them that I was that kid making fun of you when I was that age. And I got to tell them that not only was I the kid making fun of you at that age, but that Jesus wasn't done for me in spite of that. And so these kids that are doing that to you, God's not done with them either. That no matter where you, what you've done and what you've come from, that God is there and he is very ready to give you an amazing purpose. In Acts twenty two fourteen, 14, Jesus says to Paul, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. Paul talks, to himself, talks about himself as one abnormally born. That's how he says it. He was, he was adopted into God's family. He didn't come across it naturally. He had to be forced in almost. And when you, when you graft a plant in, grafting in a plant is a very violent process. If you, want, if you have a plant that is dying and you want to graft that onto another one, you have to cut off a part of that plant and then cut into the other one and jam it in there and then wrap it up until it heals. That is a jarring process. And for a lot of us, what it looked like when I had to give up all my defense mechanisms, when I had to give up all the things that made me feel safe before, running away and isolating myself and distracting myself and running to pornography and, and addictions and all these things that I clung to that got me through my stress and my anxiety. When I had to give all those things up, that was terrifying. That was not a fun process. And yet at the end of it, when he sliced all of that out of my life and he jammed me into this family and then he bound me up until we healed together, by the end of it, you've got a plant where you can't tell what was the original and what's new. It's all one. It's all together. It's been healed perfectly by God and it brought into something where you never knew it was a part. It is not easy. It wasn't easy for Paul. When Paul came into the churches, you know what they said? They're like, I bet this is a trap. Why wouldn't they? He was literally a secret agent. Like, of course, he's there to spy us out and imprison us. When he went in, the whole church didn't open up their arms to him. It was a painful process. He had to go and earn his faith and he had to earn his trust. And he had to have people that brought him alongside and, and wrapped their arms around him and embraced him. But by the end of it, you couldn't tell him from anybody else who was in the church. He was a passionate, vibrant part of the church. There was a purpose for him still. In Ephesians 2.10 this is wild. It says, God has made us what we are. In Christ Jesus, God made us new people so that we would spend our lives doing the good things he had already planned for us to do. You know what that already means? That means before he reached you, he was planning stuff for you. You know what I don't do when my kids are being terrible? I don't think, man, I got some good stuff cooking for you, man. When you turn it around, I've got all this fun stuff planned. No, I'm like, 
I got to figure out how to straighten you out, kid, right? That's not, but God is a much better father than I am, and I'm very thankful for that, right? And so while we are still disobedient, God's like, man, I've got some cool stuff for you. I've got stuff, by the time we finally get it straight and turn to him, he's got a lifetime of amazing stuff planned for us already, just waiting for us to embrace it. And every year that we run away from him, it's just cutting years of that cool stuff off, right? It's already there. It's all out in front of us. He's just waiting for us to take it. When it comes to surrendering to him, he says, test me in this and see if I don't bust open the floodgates of heaven to the point that you can't hold it all and it's going to pour out on the people around you. That's the promise that Jesus makes. But it takes adapting to his purpose and acknowledging his purpose and embracing that purpose. And that comes to number seven. If we're going to see things clearly, then I need to see that saving faith, the only faith that saves, is obedient faith. When Paul is confronted by Jesus, he asks the best question you can ask. He says, what do I do? And that was the right question. But if you ask the question and then don't do anything with it, then asking the right question hasn't helped you. In Acts twenty two sixteen, 16, Ananias comes up to Paul and he says, And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Where was Paul when he heard this message? Paul, at this point, had come to believe in Jesus. He spent days blind and desperate. And I'm sure he played, prayed a lot. At the, at the point he's confronted on the, the road to Damascus, he already believes in Jesus. That's done, right? The belief is there. He's prayed desperately because Paul doesn't know that he's going to get his sight back. And so he is praying, I'm sure, as hard as he has ever prayed at that point. And at the end of all that belief and all that praying, what's he told to do? He's told to obey. He says, get up and wash away your sins in baptism. I want you to notice a couple things. Notice that he does not have to prove himself before surrendering, right? There are times when we feel like we've got to get right without Jesus so we can get right with Jesus, and that just doesn't make sense, right? You, Jesus came to give us righteousness, to bring out righteousness in our life, and you're never going to be okay enough to deserve the sacrifice of Jesus. And I get the impulse. When someone does something for you, you want to deserve it. You want to earn it. You want to pay him back, and the truth is that you can't. And if you know who Jesus is and you ask, what shall I do? And he says, obey, then that's the next step. Not let me get right with him. That's getting right with him is just following his command. The whole point of him coming was so that he could lead us. Without obedient faith, it cannot save us. Look at what it says in 2, Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 9. This is a hard verse, but it's true. He will take revenge on those who do not know God and on those who refuse to obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Such people will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction by being separated from the Lord's presence and from His glorious power. What is that saying? That's saying that only, the only faith that saves is the faith that obeys the gospel. There are those who genuinely believe that Jesus is who He says He is, but will not let Him change their hearts. There's a word for that faith and there's, that's talked about in the Bible. When you really believe that Jesus is who he says he is, but will not surrender to him, that's compared to the faith of demons. Because demons believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and yet will not obey him. Right? It is not, it is not a good place to be to believe in Jesus. It is not enough to just believe that Jesus exists. Because that doesn't change your life, and that's what Jesus wants for you. And natural consequences are a thing. And here's what God says. 
if you spend your life separating yourself from God, then at the end of your life, when the eternal life comes, he will grant you that separation. That's what hell is. That's what eternal punishment is. It's accepting the natural consequences of a life lived running away from God. And if we tell him, if we communicate with him, with our life and with our hearts, that we don't want to be with him, then he will give us that. Remember, it's a choice. He will not make anyone go to heaven. He will not make anyone spend eternity with him. And if he is not what we want, then he'll give us that. But he also warns us and tells us that is not where you want to be. And freedom from the commands of God and independence from his rule over your life may feel liberating in the moment. But it is not going to bring you eternal peace and it's not going to bring you peace in this life either. What I've learned, what I had to learn was that when I was doing my own thing, I was wearing shackles I didn't even know about. Right? We've got a, a, a course, a group work that we do called Healing is a Choice. And one of the things that you recognize in there is that just because you don't acknowledge your hurts doesn't mean they're not affecting your life. Right? And I am I love bottling my hurts. It's my favorite. Right? Like if I cannot <laughs> confront something. If future Adam could deal with something, I would love that, right? I don't want, future Adam's got it all covered, right? I don't want to deal with this stuff. I don't want to dredge it up. I don't want to confront it. And yet, what I had to learn is that a lot of the things, man, when I lash out and I'm like, why did I get so mad at that? It's because I got stuff that I haven't dealt with, right? That I'm not, I'm not, embra- I'm not recognized, I'm not letting God heal that. When I feel depressed all the time, when I feel tired all the time, it's a lot of times it's because I'm carrying burdens that I'm not even aware that I'm carrying. And God looks at us and he sees us worn down and heavy laden. And it says when Jesus saw his people, when he saw Jerusalem down below, just running away from God, he's like, man, I wish I could gather you up in my arms and take that off of you. I I remember one time I saw uh, one of my kids had this they had their backpack and they were almost like falling back. It was so heavy. I'm like, do we need all that stuff in there? They hadn't even thought about going through it. They, they got everything that was assigned at the beginning of the year and all of it was in their backpack. And post-COVID, you don't have lockers anymore, which is wild, right? I, don't, I grew up with lockers. Like, put half your stuff in, you take half of it out. Now, they carry all of it around all the time. And so I'm like, what if we took like half of that out and all of a sudden it's like, whoa. <laughs> you know, like I can, I can, I felt so good to take that burden off my kid. And that's how God feels when we're running around and we're like, I'm free, I'm free from your restrictions on, you know, all those unhealthy things you're trying to keep me from doing. I get, I'm free to go and drink myself silly. I'm free to ignore the problems in my life and not deal with them. I'm free to hide from the people who tell me difficult things. I'm free, you're free to do all those things. But the life that that leads to is not free, right? The choices that we make have consequences. When you want to punch somebody, you're free to do it. And you're free to go to jail afterwards, right? You are free to choose what you do, but you are not free to choose the consequences. And that's what Paul, that's what Paul through God and what Jesus himself is pleading with us and trying to get us to understand is that being with him is the best thing that you can ever do. Is that even when it's hard, even when there are things that are difficult, even when he calls you to things that are hard, that it is so much better than running away and doing it our own way. God wants everyone to be saved. He has been more patient than anyone on earth expected. Paul went to his grave believing that Jesus would come back tomorrow. And the only reason that we're still here 2,000 years later talking about him is because he doesn't want anyone to be lost, and he's still trying to reach the whole world. And you are either the object of his desire or the agent of him getting that done. 
Those are the only two things we are. We are either the one he is chasing or the one he is using to chase after the world. And either way, he has a purpose for your life. He has amazing things in mind for you. And nothing you can do and nowhere you can go is going to change that.